Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Victoria Perman is a USA Today and Australia top 10 best-selling historical fiction author who loves to tell the stories of the forgotten people, the mothers and wives, the wharfies and land girls and nurses who pitched in for their country during a war and then were forgotten when the peace came. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Victoria talks about her latest book, The Women's Pages, reflects on the moment when she knew her time to write had come and tells us what she tells young writers who are just starting out and want to know how to do it. A full transcript of our chat plus links to Victoria's books and website can be found on the website of the podcast, thejoysofbingereading.com. Leave us your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from our listeners and we'll endeavour to get back to you straight away. But now, here's Victoria. Hello there, Victoria, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny, and hello, Kiwis. You're in Adelaide, if they can't already tell. (laughs) Yes. I'm sorry, my accent's probably very strong. Yes, I'm in Adelaide. It's a very cold winter's day here for us. It's 10 degrees today um, and raining. Oh, gosh, that Mm. is cold. Mm. Look, you are a former journalist turned fiction author. So I know people always like to know this question. What made you change from nonfiction to fiction? And was there any kind of sort of moment of realisation and epiphany about it? Yeah, there was for me, actually. I started as a journalist in broadcast. I worked at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and I had I'd actually left mainstream journalism and worked as a media advisor and did all sorts of communications jobs, uh, as if anyone's a journal will know them. So I wrote, I provided advice on how to deal with the media to a whole lot of people, government ministers and clients and departments and things like that. But I did have an epiphany. <laughs> I call it my midlife crisis. I, I was in my late 40s, so it was about, I was about 47, and my husband and I have three sons. And, of course, anyone with more than one child, probably even one child, knows that you, your time's not really your own when they're little. But my youngest one had turned 12, and I, it, they don't need you as much when they're... So they were 12, 15, and 18. They don't quite need you as much at that age. And so I kind of had the time to reflect about the dream I'd put away when I was 15 years old. You know, I'd always, I'd always loved reading and I always wanted to be an author. And I kind of thought, well, if I don't sort of take it seriously and start now, I'm, I might lose my chance. And I, and I was too old for the Miles Franklin, the, the Australian Literary Award. Not that I write literature, but I always thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to enter the Miles Franklin. And then I got to the 35 year age cut off and thought, oh, that that's closed to me. So I kind of, I, I saw it as the ticking clock in a sense. So I decided I would sit down and write a book. And coincidentally, a really dear friend of mine got a job as the director of um, the Essay Writers Centre, and that spurred me on too because it opened me up to that whole world of authors. And Australia has a, a South Adelaide rather has a really vibrant literary scene and you know I think 
probably per head, we have more published authors than anywhere else in the country, to be honest. So I started meeting people and, and thought, right, this is the time to take that leap into the great unknown and jump off that cliff. And then that's what I did. Fantastic. Now, you've got a new book out, The Woman's Pages, and we will be getting on to that very soon. But you started out with historic fiction, didn't you? And it was a USA Today bestseller. Well, a dual timeline story, The Three Miss Allens, set in the 1930s. Could you tell us a bit about just how you got started and why you chose historical fiction right at the start? Well, I'd actually written four or five romances before that, and I, that's, that was sort of my entree into um, the world. I, I've always done really serious jobs, as you know, being a journalist, and I've worked in government and worked for ministers, and everything was, was complex and heavy. And when I got home, I didn't want to read those sorts of things. I wanted escapism. So I, I read a lot of romance, and I read, started to read some Australian authors who wrote really gritty mystery or suspense romantic stories and then others who wrote smart, what I would call smart romance as opposed to, say, really purely escapist romance. And, and they really attracted me and they had smart characters and, and women that I recognised in them. Um, and so I wrote four or five of those. And then I just had an idea one day about this beautiful beachside location that I know very well that I'd set some of my books in. And I thought, what what would it have been like here in the 30s? And that part of Adelaide around Victor Harbour, if anyone knows it, was a very big holiday destination for the well-to-do in Adelaide. Before motor cars, people would um, catch the train down to Victor Harbour for the during the height of the summer. And the really fancy people would take their servants with them. So it was, the, it was a you know, very hoity-toity place. So I kind of thought, who, who were these people? And what was it like? So I, st- I just, it was just a peak of cu- my curiosity really. And and then I, I liked that juxtaposition about the role of women in the 30s and the role of women and the status of women in the modern day. So I, I kind of set those two things against each other about because oh, the restrictions for women back then were, it's mind boggling really. Not that things, you know, things are perfect now, but so it, uh, that was the fun for me is juxtaposing the the social order of the of the thirties and the twenty tens as they were when I wrote the, the, that book. So you are a USA Today and Australian top ten best-selling writer. Are you still doing the contemporary romance as well as the historical fiction? I've kind of run out of time. <laughs> historical <laughs> fiction, which is I really love. Is, is much harder to write for me, so I need much more time. And my last three books and the one I'm just finishing now are, are, all, are all set historically, so the research is pretty intense. So, well, I do, look, I still love reading a contemporary romance. I think it's really great to see modern contemporary issues reflected in, you know, books like that. But, no, I'm kind of obsessed by history I think in another life I should have been an historian. So I've really, I've stuck to the historical for that reason. I, I get a kick out of the research. I love weaving facts into my stories and uh, no, that's where I'm firmly going to stay. And it was, a, it was rewarded for me because The Land Girls, as you mentioned, was a, a top 10 Australian bestseller. So that was really rewarding. So the new one, The Women's Pages, is very much embedded in the journalism world of the 1940s in, in Melbourne. It's set in World War II and it traces a young woman called Tilly who starts out as a secretary, very smart young woman, 
who gets a chance to become a reporter because so many of the men folk are away at war. What attracted you to this story? It really flowed from the end of my previous book, The Land Girls, which was set during World War II about the Australian Women's Land Army. And I understand the New Zealand um, New Zealand had a land army too. I think it did, yes. Yeah. Lots of countries did. It, it, the, the concept originated in England in World War I, actually, and, and Canada adopted the model as well, and, the, and America's. That book ended at the very end of the war when victory was won. And when I was touring with that book, I heard so many stories from people who came along to my events about what happened after the war. And I, I, I always used to say something like, you know, the, the, the kind of idea behind the land girls that it wasn't just a man's war. And people really warmed to that idea and they would say, oh, well, when so-and-so, I remember when my father came home or my grandfather and my uncle. And, and it made me start thinking about what happened after the war in Australia. What was it like to recover from that six-year uh, period of huge uncertainty and sacrifice and loss how did the country recover? Mm. And and that's where the idea of the women's pages came. And I I can't I, I used the device, I suppose, of having a, a, it through a female journalist's eyes because she could be the eyes and ears of the curious. She could go into different parts of society and ask questions and and wonder why and uncover the truth of the way those post-war years were starting to develop, especially for women. Um, so I created Tilly Galloway. I did, I did lots of research about female journalists of that era in Australia and that was really fascinating too. So correspondence, Australian war, war correspondence, but they were not allowed to go near a soldier. Their role was, a, was as part of the propaganda machine of the army really to go and interview land girls and women who worked in munitions factories and uh, signalers and all those amazing jobs that women did in Australia during the war. So that, they were seen as a kind of a... A, a booster to to women. They they were not allowed to go anywhere near troops or interview an interview a soldier at all. So there was a kind of a there was a, a freedom in uh, and a confidence in being appointed a war correspondent. And then they were brought back down to earth very quickly. They weren't happy about it, and I reflected that in in my character of Tilly Galloway. Yeah, they fought and fought, but no. And then when, when MacArthur and the Americans arrived, they were even more stringent about. Um, not letting female journalists in it because they saw them as a nuisance and a distraction that they wouldn't, where would they accommodate them? Where would they sleep? You know, they would distract the men with their beauty and their, their wiles, you know. <laughs> Nothing's more blokey than war. So, yeah, they were confined to Australia and, and I reflected that frustration in, in Tilly's career through the book. It's interesting because I have recently interviewed a New Zealand historical author called Deborah Chalinor and she did a PhD here in New Zealand on the New Zealand Vietnam vets. So she's a PhD in history and she said something that struck me. She said wars are not won on foreign fields, they are won at home. And I was thinking about that as I was reading the women's pages because I thought maybe you would have some sympathy with that statement. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, I think. The book I'm writing now is set in World War One, so it's a really interesting juxtaposition to look at. If you ask your average person about why why World War One started, people didn't really understand back then. And I, to be honest, I think we all know about someone being shot in Sarajevo, but how did that lead to Australia going to war? It's 
it was yeah. very murky and it was very kind of ancient, these alliances in Europe. But World War II was really, really obvious. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and I think Australia saw itself under actual physical threat as well as existential mm. threat. Mm, um, because of the bombing of Darwin, yes. Exactly. And the, yeah. the Japanese moving down through, and, and the war in the Pacific was very real. But she's absolutely right in saying that if you don't win the hearts and minds of people at home as to why it's a just cause, I mean, Vietnam's a perfect example. It seems so far away and ridiculous. Mm. Why are we in Vietnam? What's, mm. what, what's, the, what's that about? And, uh, you know, it was about the spread of communism. That's really hard to understand in a country so far away as, you know, that World War II was was much clearer. So, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, she probably spoke about what changed things in Vietnam was the TV footage every night. Mm-hmm. For the first time, the war was televised and so people saw the death and destruction and the, mm-hmm. the utter stupidity of some mm-hmm. of what was going on. And, uh, you know, a picture tells a thousand words, as they say. So, yeah, if you don't keep people convinced of the rightness of it, I think, you you know, you do. And, yes. and Vietnam's a perfect example of that. Mm. The woman's pages very poignantly portrays these women who just live in hope and faith all through the war, some, some of them not receiving any word from their husbands, some knowing that their husbands have become prisoners of war but still hoping that they're going to come home. And then some of them come home and some of them don't. We won't have any spoilers on who that is. But then you get the irony that the one whose husbands, the ones whose husbands have come home are perhaps no better off and maybe even worse off than the ones whose husbands don't. So it's it's a very poignant story, isn't it? It doesn't necessarily have the wonderful happy ending they've all been hoping for. I look so true, and that came out of my research. You know, it's interesting to to compare it to coronavirus at the moment, actually, not in the sense that people are separated and we don't know how long it's going to go on for. Mm. And I was only reflecting on that this morning, actually. We, I've got very close friends in Melbourne and family in Melbourne, and and we're doing things like, oh, surely this will be over by Christmas and you'll be able to come over for Christmas, and we, we don't know that, actually. And, and yeah. that was what was said during the war. It'll be over by Christmas. Mm. Christmas was just seen that that time when f- family was so important. So I just don't know how those families back here coped for six years. Mm. Mm. I really don't. And that kind of, I, I tried to explore that. And and as you mentioned, that there were all sorts of circumstances that women faced. Some some whose husbands came home changed men, and and you know for very understandable mm. reasons about. Mm having been a prisoner of war and having mm. been tortured and others came home untouched but didn't want to come back to their wives. Those, so those wives were abandoned. The War Widows Guild was established for widows, but there was also a huge cohort of women whose um, husbands left them with nothing, mm. ran off with other women or became so unwell that they ran, they, they were, were so affected and what we would you know, what was called war neuroses and shell shock in yeah. World War One. Yeah, yeah, PTSD. Yeah. We would now say. Yeah. yeah, so many of them drank as well. So mm. that to cope with the, I'm certain to cope with the after effects of what they had seen and done. So the the after effects lived on for a very very long time. I I, I used this story in the book. It, I heard it 
from the lips of the man, the man who had happened to, it was at a library talk in New South Wales, and I was talking about that idea when I toured with the land girls about you know, what happened after the war and people were told to get on with their lives, but they, we, we know that that wasn't as simple as it sounded. And, and this one man in the audience sort of shook his head and afterwards he came up to me and said um, he was 14 at the end of World War II and his uncle came back from Japan uh, not from Japan, sorry, from um, Pacific. He'd been a prisoner of war and he they shared a bedroom, you know, housing shortages after the war, so everyone bunked in together. And he said, I'll never forget the scars on my uncle's back. Mm-hmm. And he was tearing up telling me this story and I thought, this is 70-odd years later, mm-hmm. 75-odd mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. How did those men cope? How did families cope with the knowledge of, of what had happened? And we tend to think now that people didn't know what was happening during the war. You know, it, it was a shock to, it was all a big shock at the end, but actually looking at newspaper reports at the time, and I, which I did, news was leaking out about some of the terrible things that were happening and, and whether people didn't want to face it or they did really know what was happening and just didn't talk about it is, is another fascinating part of that history for me. Mm. But I did try to reflect that in the book about all those circumstances women found themselves in. Yeah, I think you did that well. Was there one thing that surprised you in the research that you did that sort of stood out that you were quite shocked or or hadn't expected? The way war widows were treated actually was pretty shocking to me, that they were almost abandoned. And back then in the the 40s in Australia, there was no supporting parents' pension, for example. Those women whose husbands dumped them were on their own. There was a very small child endowment supplement and that was it. So that, that really surprised me. I mean, I, um, in Australia, we did have big, big social changes in the 1970s. Um, I can't, I'm sorry, I don't know about New Zealand's experience, but under Gough Whitlam here in Australia, the supporting parents benefit was introduced and that was a life-changing support mm. for women who, mm. who, could, who could leave violent relationships finally, knowing they had, even though the bare minimum, no, they had some support. So it was that, and I wondered if war widows were treated that way because uh, and those who were who were left, because it was a nasty reminder of about the downside of, of the war. So we, we tend to think that everyone came home from the war and they created the baby boomer generation, you know. Everyone was happy and they all bought houses and Australia blossomed and everyone had kids and, oh, things were great. But, but I, I always ask that question, who were they great for? And I'm interested in navigating and excavating the stories of those who continue to suffer, who, whose, whose histories we don't know. So, Yes, it comes through very strongly how almost as soon as the war was over, in fact, probably even before the men landed back on Australian soil, women's autonomy was sharply restricted and they just expected women to drop everything and go back to the way things were and they were told just to go home and be good little wives and it's your job now to look after your husband, that kind of thing. And if you were a single woman and you had no particular reason to stay home, well, too bad because a man needed your job. Absolutely right. And there were moves that went all the way to the High Court in Australia after the war to cut the wartime wages of women who had been working during the war. Gosh. And then there was across lots of industries because the war was a great economic booster Sadly, the way things work, that's true. So the ports were busier than ever. Manufacturing was busier than ever. Feeding the war effort was an enormous task. 
and transport and logistics of getting things to the war if it were too. So, yeah, after the war, everyone faced the prospect of having their wages cut. Look, you've got another historical bestseller tucked away there, the last of the, well, I think it's Bonagilla, is, is that how you say it? Uh, Bonagilla. Bonagilla. But you're not um, actually wrong because th- there are actually three established ways to say that, Bonagilla, Bonagilla and Bonagilla. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it was a post-war migrant camp set up on the banks of the Murray River. So we're talking now into the early 50s. But you have a very personal connection with that story, don't you? Would you like to tell us about how that one came to be written? Another bestseller, I gather. Yes. It, there was a really personal connection to that one. Again, ask any author where the idea for a book comes and sometimes you have an idea that's always been in your head and other times you have no idea. And, and this was the one that I had always had this idea in my head. My, I'm the, a first-generation Australian and both my parents came to Australia from Europe after the war in 1950, 1949 and 1954. So my father was a refugee um, from Poland and my mother came in 1954 with her four siblings and her mum and dad. She was 14 in that big post-war, Australia had a big post-war immigration program to populate Australia with, let's be frank, white people. Mm -hmm. So to to ward off any threat of Japanese expansionism. And because my parents were, you know, middle European, uh, white, blonde at the time, they were readily accepted. So, and both of them were at that camp, Bonagilla, which had been an army camp, and in fact still is, but after the war, it was wound down because we didn't need to train soldiers anymore. But it had lots of accommodation. It, it, it accommodated 9,000 people. So in, in that post-war migration boom, it was used as a temporary housing sort of camp for the waves and waves of migrants who came to Australia. It wasn't a, there were no lock gates, as we might think now of internment centres and things, but it, it because there was one a housing shortage and two so many people coming, there were a few of these around Australia in various towns and in Sydney, Villawood was one too, where people were accommodated, fed, inducted into Australia, if you like, given rudimentary English lessons until they were assigned work. And that's what happened to my grandfather. He he was given a job in Adelaide in a factory and that's how we the whole family came to be in Adelaide. And and I thought that was, I'd always known that name Bonagilla growing up. It was always, oh, when we're at Bonagilla or we met people at Bonagilla or it was just such a, it was always there in my, my family's story. And mm. um, one day I thought, I'm, I need to write that story because we don't, we don't know those migrant stories. And again, it's that part of social history that I'm really fascinated in as the, the, the ordinary stories of working people. Mm. And you know, those migrants who came over worked in factories, cleaners, cooks. Sometimes they were, you know, domestics in large houses. They set up fish and chip shops, grocers. They were an industrious lot of people and who'd never really read about their history. And and that book has just resonated with so many people. I still get messages today about that one, you know, two, two years later. The people said, my this is my mother's story or this is my grandmother's and grandfather's story and they were at Bonagilla too and I'd always heard about it. Or People who were there said, you created it in such a way that brought back memories for me and, and that was a real honour actually to tell those stories. It sounds like your book tours have been a great sort of moment of exchange of knowledge and, and perhaps helped you with understanding future books. 
Oh, absolutely. By the end of the Bonagilla Girls tour, I kind of did an introduction about me and my family and then I handed it over to the audience. And the stories I heard were, I wish I'd heard them before I'd written a book, to be honest, because everyone had a story. One woman came and said, oh, I was on the Sky Bruin with my family. We came from Holland and the ship sunk in the Indian Ocean. And, and she showed me on her phone a photo of their rescue made the front page of every paper in Australia at the time. And she said, there's me, I'm in the photo. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was incredible and everyone, yeah, th- at the beginning of that, um, when I did those events, I would say, who, who has a connection to Bonagilla? And usually 75% of the room, there's a hand raised. Gosh. So uh, I find that, as an author, I find that absolutely, you know, fills my well, actually. Yes. And that's, yeah, why, that's, that's why I wanted to tell those stories. But moving away from the specific books and turning to your wider career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you'd see as the secret of your success? I think reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading. And, and, and in both ways, one is for enjoyment and one is for research. Mm-hmm. But I've always been curious and I think that's most journalists who, people who are trained as journalists are there because they're curious. You know, you see something and you say, why did that happen? What's mm. going on? Mm. Who, who, who made that? Who said that? Why did they say that? It's those, those questions that as, you know, as journalists we know that's the who, what, why, where, when and how. Mm. I still go back to those questions. And I, and I think it's my curiosity and I, I always gave in to that curiosity and I still do and, um, I love hearing people's stories and I love finding out how, how people think and how they work. So I guess two, those two things, reading and asking questions. And what would your advice be to young writers starting out? I imagine that you probably get quite a, quite a few young writers who ask you what they should be doing. What do you tell them? I do tell them to read. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of young people who want to be writers but they don't actually read. And reading will, in a purely professional sense, reading gives you an idea of what's being published. And it also helps you learn. It helps you learn technique and story and plotting. And you, when you read a book, you say, I didn't expect that to happen. How did they do that? Where did that idea come from? Where did, that, where did they get that research? How did they find that out? So as well as the pure enjoyment and being swept away in a story, which is also really important, but I would say read. And, mm. and connect, connect with a writing community. I think that's really important. Every state has, uh, I don't know about New Zealand, but find your local writing centre or a book club or a writers group and connect with other writers. I did that at the very beginning of my career here in Adelaide and I've made some of my best friends through that community. And, you know, you share your successes and your rejections as well. And you yeah. know that you're... You're not, a, you're not a crazy writer. There are a whole lot of other crazy writers out there too. <laughs> One of the things that a lot of those crazy writers say is that practically every book has its dark moment when they're convinced that it's nonsense and they're not going to be able to finish it. Would you sort of sympathise with that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm right in that moment now. <laughs> My book for next year, is, I'm at 130,000 words and I'm thinking I'm not finished yet. <laughs> When is it going to end? And and also that doubt about is it any good? I mean, every I think every creative person thinks that at the end yeah. of that the creative process. 
you get so close to it, you lose your objectivity, don't oh, you? Oh, absolutely. Mm. You really do. And you, yeah, and it's not until I get feedback from my editor and my publisher that I know that it's good or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the, she's my first reader mm. and I wait for that critical feedback. Mm-hmm. And that's nerve-wracking too. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So we do like to touch into what do you like to read and particularly what do you like to read for relaxation, for, for your binge reading. What are your current favourite reads in that, in that area? Well, when I binge read, I tend to go outside my genre. I'm, I'm too worried that I will inadvertently steal a plot or a name or a device or something. So I do tend to read crime. And a bit of literary fiction too. What have I read? Like, I love Normal People by Sally Rooney. I love Dervla McTiernan's books, Jane Harper's books, mm. Hannah Rochelle, and then a bit of nonfiction as well. And I have one on my pile, which is right next to me. It's called Our Bodies, Their Battlefield by Christina Lamb, and it's about the widespread use of rape as a, as a tool of war. So I try to, I try to read Escapist and then also for you know, to fill my creative well about what I might write about next. I've kind of done my World War II trilogy, The Last of the Bonnegill Girls, The Land Girls and The Women's Pages. And as I mentioned, I'm writing about World War I at the moment and about mm-hmm. nurses in World War I. So, yeah, I'm trying to take myself back into that era as well. So I wish I had more time for reading. Every author probably says that. And I juggle, a, I work part-time as well. And I have three kids and a five-month-old puppy and a bathroom renovation. So... <laughs> I try to do all those things in a balanced way, probably none of them very well, but that's life. Looking back over your very long and successful career, is there anything you would change if you could now looking back over that tunnel of time? And if you could, what would it be? I don't think I would change anything, to be honest. I think I didn't start writing till I was 47 and, you know, it might be tempting to say, oh, I should have started early, but actually I don't think so. I think it happened at the exact time it should have. I don't know what I would have written about if I'd been much younger. Mm. I don't think I was ready for it then or maybe I would have done it when, when I was mm. ready and been, you know, mm. been younger and ready, but no, I don't think I would actually. It, every, it, it's like, you know, you, if you find your dream job, you've only found your dream job because you were in a job that wasn't your dream job and you decided to move on. Yes. So it's a bit like that for me. It's about all the things I've done, even the ones that haven't been successful, have built onto the next thing. It's To me, it's like a building a wall with bricks. You, know, you look back yes. on some and go, mm, that, that didn't work out. But the next thing was great. And if, I, if that, that had worked out, I wouldn't have done that thing. So it's kind of building... It's just building and the more the more you do, the more people you meet, the more ideas you're exposed to and that all feeds that curiosity of mine about people and stories. So, no, I don't think I'd change anything, to be honest. That's great. Look, you've mentioned this World War One book now. So what are your plans for the rest of 2020 and turning over into 2021? What is on the cards for Victoria the writer? Well, this book comes out. I have a, a schedule of events around that, you know, cross fingers, coronavirus yes. pending. Then I will begin the editing process for next year's book. That's for 2021. And then at the same time, starting to write a 2022's book and hopefully do some reading in the meantime. But I have a book a year with release schedules and the lead times are quite long. So I will submit next year's book a year in advance. Uh-huh. So that's my plan. And so I've got, 
I've got some writing to do and a puppy to raise. <laughs> Any ideas about what the 2022 one is going to be at the moment or is that entirely? No, I, I think it's going to be a, about women's suffrage in Australia. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just, I think that's my idea. Any more than that, I don't know. But Australia, South Australia, and I know parts of New Zealand were the first in the world to allow women to vote, mm-hmm. to grant women the right to vote. But in, in Adelaide, we had women were won the right to vote universally, I think, in, in the state elections and the fir- were the yes, first place in the world. So, And there were some fantastic women who fought for that. Mm. And, in fact, they then went over to the UK and advised the UK suffragettes about their campaign. And, and funnily enough, I'm, because I'm writing World War I at the moment, it was actually campaigning stopped during World War I the suffragettes campaigning stopped, but at the end of the war, they were granted the right to vote over a certain age. There were qualifiers, of course, but so the war did have a profound change for women in the UK. We, of course, had won the right, you know, down under and across the ditch, you know, way before. I think there's stories there that most people don't know. I work with um, a couple of young women, and I mentioned that um, back in the old days, if you were married, you lost your job in the public service. And they were really shocked. It's just, they just didn't know. Mm. And I said, oh, it wasn't that far away either. So mm. I think there's lots of that history that um, deserves some airtime to remind us how far we've come, actually. And, and yes. the really huge battles. We tend to think that it just happened. You know, all these things that are good just happened. But they don't just happen. They have to be fought for. Yeah. You've mentioned the pandemic. Is it going to interrupt your launch of the women's room, the women's pages very much? Yes, it, it, look, it, it, it has meant I haven't been able to travel interstate. I don't know if your listeners are aware, but Victoria, the state, is completely locked down. Mm. There's, mm. there's quarantine arrangements in place for people going to New South Wales, Queensland, everywhere really. So everyone's just staying home, which is, of course, the right thing to do. But, yeah, it means I haven't been able to travel and no one has. So, And, and that's a first world problem, I, I understand. I'm, I'm hoping to do, I'm still hoping to do events in Adelaide. I have a number of books, I think six library visits and things and do lots of um, interviews and Zoom calls and meetings and uh, online things. Mm-hmm. Everyone's had to pivot in a, in a really interesting way. We, look, And some of that is really good because not everyone has the ability to get out in the evenings to go to a book launch, mm-hmm. especially if it's a long distance away. So by, by being able to Zoom in, I think, you know, you open up you open up a, an experience to people who might not um, have been able to do that before. So there are upsides. I think it, it, it's been a difficult time for a whole lot of people and, you know, authors and booksellers know orphans in that regard. So everyone's trying to make the best of the situation. Yeah, yeah. Do you see it having any long-term impact on your work? I have to say uh, it has been very difficult to concentrate Mm. everyone is waiting at the moment for the daily figures out of Victoria to see how they're going and we all hang on that announcement every morning. So mm. it, it, I, found, I found it difficult to concentrate and it seems kind of trivial to be worried about, you know, a book coming out when people are dying and very sick. Mm. So it, it's been hard, I think, and I, 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 because I talk to a lot of writer friends as well, I think it's a very common thing. And I've tried, I can't concentrate enough to read at the moment either. Usually that happens when I'm on a um, hard deadline and I'm near the end of a book, but that's what I hope to do over the summer here, I think, is to just dive into my pile of books, which is growing enormously. 
<laughs> Maybe that'll get me back into the, the mood. And uh, it's an unsettling time for everyone and that, that has effects for the way we do what we do. Yes, yes. Look, we are coming to the end of our time together. So tell people where they can find you online. And there's certainly no doubt that you seem to sound as if you enjoy interacting with your readers. Where can they find you? Oh, people can find me on Facebook as Victoria Perman Author. Um, I'm on Instagram as Victoria Permanent Author, on which you'll see lots and lots of photos of my golden retriever dog because <laughs> she's so beautiful. Um, and at my website, uh, victoriaperman.com. Marvellous. I love to hear from readers, obviously. It's, it fills my well and uh, it, it helps when you sit by your desk for a long stretches of time and you hear some kind words from someone. That's lovely, Victoria. Look, thank you so much for your time today and all the very best with this launch. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.